The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. for you to follow in your Bible as I'm going to read today from the 32nd chapter of Genesis. I've been looking at an assortment of moments. They're all going to be in the Old Testament for the next couple months. What we're calling turning points in lives, places where God met people in rather dramatic ways. We're looking for how people responded, but really in the bottom line, we're looking for what we can learn about God. From moments like these. Today we look at the life of God's patriarch, Jacob, a long and complicated life, and I will fill in a little bit of his history, but we find him in the midst of a very dramatic, very unusual event in Genesis 32, and I will read beginning at verse 22 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word, his own revelation about himself and about us. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is upon the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of of the thigh. This is God's holy word. I've certainly learned to know that there's a certain type of person who plows their way through life by shrewd use of nerve and wits and schemes. They seem to have a natural boldness about them that many people lack. They're people you would usually call survivors. Faced with some kind of a crisis or a challenge, Instead of turning away or running, they figure out a way to get around it or to get through it. I think of one example many of you might recall with a smile, a TV series of about 20 years ago or so called MacGyver. Remember MacGyver, young man, very 
wise and uh, interesting young man who it seemed could solve any problem in life as long as he had a Swiss Army knife. MacGyver was a survivor. Well, there are people like this who become the entrepreneurs who lead large companies or sometimes who succeed well in political office. They're the ones who find ways to press ahead and get something done and usually come out looking pretty good themselves while others sit and scratch their heads and try to figure out what in the world should we do. And in that light, I would ask you to meet Jacob, patriarch of the nation of Israel, and certainly one of the most complex characters who appears anywhere in the Word of God. You could call this man a conniver, a survivor, the black sheep of his family, shrewd businessman, but in the end, you have to realize that he becomes something you don't expect, humble man of God. All those terms rightly describe Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we find him in the crisis moment of his spiritual and and really physical life, his whole career, wrestling strangely with the angel of the Lord in one of the premier mysteries of the Old Testament. Now, as we think about Father's Day today, I would say probably most human beings picture God in a kind of benign fatherly role, kindly, grandfatherly, good, kind. You don't usually picture the idea of the Bible's God as someone who attacks people. But that's exactly what he does here. He comes unexpectedly. He takes initiative that is even violent in its nature. And he wrestles with a man to overcome his doubts and his sin. We don't have that expectation of God. We don't expect him to ambush us. But here he does. And in Genesis 32, Jacob had to first meet God as an adversary so that he could go on to understand God as his Lord and his Savior. Jacob's conversion, I think, was completed. It, was, it had been on its way before this. This isn't the first moment that he ever was dealing with God, but most people would see this as the the real climactic hour of the completion of this man's conversion into a man of faith. In a time when his cunning and his strength and his scheming could not do anything for him, and in fact they were broken, those things were not going to accomplish any more than they had. And in an exhausted surrender, Jacob became a humble child of faith. I really would suppose it's entirely possible and not probable that some of you today would be in a situation, probably not nearly as dramatic as this, but a situation where you might see yourself in this narrative because perhaps God is dealing similarly with you. Listen and see if it fits. First, we need to just take some background. It's a, it's a long story, and I have to just sketch it in a few strokes. But to give you the fill-in, the picture of this man, if they wrote a book, about Jacob's life and career before this, up to this moment, I'd give it the title of my point, Grasping God's Benefits by His Own Devices. Grasping God's Benefits by His Own Devices. You see this all the way through from his birth. If you want to follow the pages, start in Genesis 25 and follow with me there. As he's born, second of twin brothers. His twin brother Esau, born first, the 
the rough man who's described as the outdoorsman. He becomes a hunter. Esau born first, and it's noted in, in Genesis 25, 26, that when Jacob was born, you know, I thought they probably just thought it was a little curiosity at the birth, but later Rebekah and Isaac remembered it because of what it said, that Jacob was born with his hand holding Esau's heel. In fact, there's a sense of that in the meaning of his name, the grasper, the one who takes hold of things or, or takes things for himself. And there was a sense that there was a struggle for supremacy between these two brothers, really, from their time in the womb. It's even noted how Rebecca felt them contesting one another in her womb. 25.33 goes on and teaches you about them later in life when Esau comes in one time from the field, exhausted, famished, and here's Jacob with some stew that had been made, and he says, give me some of that stew. I need it right now. I'm hungry. Give it to me. I'll give anything for it. Jacob says, will you give me the blessing of the older brother? Will you confer that? And that was an important privilege. Might not seem like anything to you, but it was very important in that day. And he said, sure. What does that mean? I'm hungry. Give me some of that stew. And Esau carelessly gives away the blessing. The divide worsens in chapter 27 as you see Jacob and his mother. Now, here's a real Father's Day scene for you. Jacob and his mother conniving together to deceive Isaac, the father, nearly blind, who desires some wild game to be made from Esau's hunting expedition, and Esau agreed to go out and do that. And while he's gone, they came, disguised Jacob in such a way that the the nearly blind old man didn't know, and he conferred the formal blessing of God that belonged to the older brother upon the younger brother by trickery. Well, Esau came in, you can imagine, second time he's been tricked, and he vowed that he would murder Jacob. So it's in response to that that Jacob takes off, and for many years was gone from the vicinity of his family. He went to be with his uncle Laban. If you're already a trickster and a deceiver, you're going to have your skills honed if you live near Laban, because Laban was better at it than Jacob. And he taught his nephew how to scheme and how to deceive. And yet, in it all, Jacob came out on his feet and came out a very rich man. And responding to the call of God in several different ways that you can read about in those chapters preceding this one, Jacob decides it's time to go home, not just on a whim. God called him to do that. God told him he would look over him and and watch over him Genesis 28, 15 tells it, the Lord said to him when he set out, I will be with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. There's a sense of God's calling and God's purpose in the life of this tricky deceiver. You know, not a man whose, whose behavior was everything we might desire it to be in his early life. And actually, that, that may disturb some people. You may say, well, God, if, he, if God is going to call a great patriarch to be the father of, of all the nations that will be called Israel, wouldn't he get somebody a little more saintly than this? But it was Jacob. Would you have had him take Esau, who had no concern for the things of God? In fact, spit on the things of God, despised the blessing of God, showed himself completely careless. God didn't take Esau. He chose Jacob. And it tells us that God may choose to do things in history 
and in his church through some really remarkable and unexpected types of people. Many of you know that Charles Colson died just a little while ago, about a month ago, I think, a great man of God in our generation. But Charles Colson didn't start out with the markings of a great man of God on him, did he? An ex-Marine, an attorney, working for the Nixon administration, you all know the story of Chuck Colson, who was the hatchet man, they called him, the chief man in charge of dirty tricks for the Nixon administration in that crucial election there back in the early 70s. And it was Colson who led the way into prison for those who were convicted of real crimes. Colson, who one cohort of his said, Colson would walk over his own grandmother to do something for the president. Colson, who met Jesus Christ in the summer of 1975, who wrote a biography of that, an autobiography called Born Again. Many of you, I'm sure, read it years ago. Colson, who they laughed at and said, oh, well, yeah, sure, you're going to prison. Uh, Why not get God? The newspapers just literally laughed. One by one, they basically stopped laughing over the next 35 years. As Chuck Colson founded prison ministry and spent a sacrificial and admirable life in service to his Savior and to prisoners all over this country. I was actually amazed. I'm very interested in our newspaper with its two-sided editorials. I think you know the layout. You know, supposedly conservatives on the right, other editorials on the left. It was on the left... And I don't even remember the syndicated columnist's name who wrote, but I'm sure many of you noted it. A week or two after Colson's death, a man who wrote, literally jeering, which was first of all disrespectful of the dead, but yet amazing how he jeered at Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, according to this man, was a complete fake. He'd always been a criminal and he died a criminal. And anything he did for God or for Christianity was all just an act and of no, no real consequence. I almost wept for that man in his spiritual ignorance, in his inability to see the work of God in a life totally transformed and given to the service of the Lord, that he could mock this man. And I, it just made me call, stop and say, I've heard Chuck Colson speak a number of times, and I felt God used him in a prophetic way. Because I said to myself, Mr. Editorialist, If God cannot truly transform the life of Chuck Colson, then there's no hope for me either. Maybe God doesn't really transform people after all, if you're right and I'm wrong. Jacob of old and Chuck Colson built their early success by exerting their own strength, using their own wisdom, using deception and cunning. And you know, these gifts can even be taken and sanctified and turned around by God once they're broken down and the individual who's using them is humbled. And that's what we see happening to Jacob and that's what happened to Chuck Colson. We heard the bagpipe strains earlier this morning of amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We don't have to stay as creatures of cunning who grasp the blessings of God totally by our own strength. Well, secondly, we go on now with that background and look at our chapter itself and see as a second point God's startling assault, and you can only call it that, assault of grace here. 
Look at the text. Jacob was left alone at night, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That's, that's the simple thing that's told. He was going back to his home because God had called him to do it. God had said, I have a destiny for you, and it's not back there with Laban. When you get done with him, go home, in so many words. And he knew, when I go home, there's something to deal with, something dangerous, something difficult. It's called Esau. And if you'll look earlier in chapter 32 here, you'll see, uh, verse uh, 6 and 7, that he gets a report that indeed Esau has heard that he's coming. Well, you think, is Esau riding out on a lonely camel to greet his long-lost brother? The report is he has 400 men. That doesn't sound like the welcome wagon. 400 men riding to meet Jacob. And it says Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so the old cunning, the old scheming takes over. He says, look, I'll better divide my household in two. I'll put one wife over here with these children and and this many of my goods and the other wife over there so that if Esau gets one group, at least he won't wipe me out totally. And then he sent three waves of gifts, animals and and food and all kinds of things, the three different parties coming to bring these gifts to try to appease Esau. You see, he's still the schemer, still working every angle that he can possibly work. But then when he had worked all the angles, we read Jacob doing something that wasn't in the part I read. Cast your eyes on it, if you will. Chapter 32, verse 9 and following. Jacob prayed. It's actually a wonderful prayer. He recognizes God, his his father who led him. He recognizes his own unworthiness. He pleads for safety, but he offers himself to God. By the way, that's the first recorded prayer in the Bible. Jacob prayed. He threw himself on the mercy of God. And now here he is, having sent all his household away, he decided, I guess, to spend the night alone with the Lord by the creek Jabbok, which was a dividing line of that territory. What could a person fear most very late at night in the dark all alone? Young ladies, what do you fear most crossing the college campus when the library closes and you've got to get back to your dorm? Strong men, what do you fear most in a strange city where you're taking a shortcut through an alley and you're not really sure if this is a good path to follow or not? What do you fear most? What was feared most happened. A hand came out and grabbed him and threw him down. And how do you react? You fight. You're sure that this is somebody who wants to harm you and and you respond in self-defense. And so for some time, Not knowing who in the world this was. Was it a bandit? Was it Esau? Was it Esau's hired man? Who was this? Jacob fought back. He's called a man. And we have those questions that always stir. Who in the world is this? We get a little bit of help from one of the prophets of the Old Testament, Hosea. Chapter 12 records this and and comments on this as that inspired prophet says this about Jacob. He said, Jacob, as a man, struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame. He wept and begged for his favor. Now, that's Scripture interpreting Scripture. The violent intruder to the camp of Jacob was sent from God. A real man, a real being, not a vision. This wasn't just a nightmare. 
You know, have you ever struggled or kicked out in your sleep when you were having a nightmare and you thought somebody was going to hurt you? Not so awful long ago. My wife's already thinking of this. She doesn't even know what I'm going to say. But I, about a year ago, I was literally in a, in a dream that somebody fearsome was attacking me and I let loose with a punch that landed on my wife's shoulder. And I'm glad it didn't hurt her. Never struck her in my life. But it was, it was absolutely real to me. I thought I was trying to get rid of this person that was attacking me. This was not a dream. It may have had dreamlike qualities, and, and there's an undefined thing. Jacob wanted to know, what's your name? Who are you? You notice that question didn't get answered. And yet at the end of it, he more or less knows because he says, I've seen God. This is someone from God. And he asked for the blessing of this person. But even before that, you notice how this wrestler, this angel of the Lord, dislocated his hip. It seemed like they fought even, even. You know, high school wrestling matches, I think, are six minutes long. This was hours. They must have been totally exhausted. And yet, it seems like the angel could have prevailed at any moment had he wanted to, because when he wanted to, he put his hip out of joint immediately. And you don't keep fighting with a dislocated hip. I've never had one. I hope I never do. But a few of you may know your hip is dislocated. You're not doing much of anything. Not long ago, I watched a movie. Here's the big shock. The pastor watches boxing movies. Uh, A movie called Cinderella Man. I think it's a fine movie, actually. Russell Crowe plays a real-life character, James J. Corbett boxer from the Depression era, man absolutely down on, it, on his luck in life, can hardly provide for his family, somehow gets positioned to where he has a title bout to fight for the heavyweight title as the most amazing underdog that could ever be. And he's fighting against Max Baer, a man who had killed two men in the ring with his fists. Nobody thought James J. Corbett, Gentleman Jim Corbett, could win. And, of course, the movie portrays the long fight, 15 full rounds. And what's so amazing about it is at the end of the fight, the two of them, they're still sort of trying to punch each other. But what they're really doing more than punching each other is just hanging on to each other. Because they'll both fall down if they don't keep each other up. They are so totally exhausted. And that's what I see here. Jacob, completely exhausted, this emissary of God saying, let me go now. It seems like there's been a test to see if he would prevail or how he would react. And Jacob reacts as the exhausted believer, and in the third place then, asks a blessing as an exhausted believer. Verse 26 has it. I won't let you go until you bless me. I don't know what he thought what he thought this man could do, but he sensed this one was from God and he could convey something good from God. He who had made a career of wrestling blessings, cheating for blessings, now pleaded helplessly for a blessing. You see, to be alone with God with all your human advantages of maybe wealth, education, power, sophistication, cleverness, all stripped away, there's nothing but your soul and God's, and all you can do is plead. Martin Luther preached on this passage, and he 
made no bones about how he interpreted it. Luther said, this mystery assailant in the night was the Lord Jesus Christ come to wrestle for the soul of this man. Calvin also spoke about it as a reformer. He wrote, as God fights against us and against sin with his left hand, so at the same time does he supply us with his strength and uphold us with his right hand. He grants us the victory of faith, even though we seem to overcome. When in fact, all we're doing is claiming his strong salvation in our utter weakness. Calvin had it exactly right. Helpless, lame, ready to fall down if somebody didn't hold him up. Jacob looked like the loser, but he wasn't the loser in his desperate tenacity to cling to the very person who had wounded him and be given a new name signifying his new nature. His new name was Israel. The first time that word is heard in the Bible, right here. The new name meant God prevails. God overcomes. You see, everywhere he had gone, you know you go to these conventions or meetings where there are strangers and you have to put on a little sticky badge that sticks on your suit for about five minutes and falls off. And it says, hello, I am, and you put your name. Well, if Jacob had one of those on most of his life, it was, hello, I am Jacob, the one who grabs things. I grabbed my brother's heel and I've been grabbing blessings all my life. Now he wore a new badge. His new badge said, hello, I'm Jacob. God prevails. God is the victor. That's the message I want to give. Not I can overcome anything by my wits, but I have seen the face of God. The God who overcomes on behalf of men. Now I tell you folks, you or I are not going to have a dramatic encounter like this, I wouldn't think. And yet it's true that God comes to us. When we're in the midst of stressful times, when we're very alone, when our ability to cope seems to run quite low, One of the things we need is exactly what happened to Jacob. We need to discover the end of our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency and our ability to solve every problem in a detailed way. We need to plead and hold on for the redemption of the grace and the strength and the overcoming of God. Some of you still need to understand that. Many of you do understand it. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody who hasn't figured it out yet by the Holy Spirit, that you need to stop boxing with God and start clinging to him and pleading for what he desires to do to make you new like he made Jacob new. Calvin, again, let me quote him this time. Although we may have sensed God's presence with us sometimes as being harsh and grievous, even to the disjointing of our members, Calvin said it is better for children of God to be mutilated if need be than for us to withdraw from his presence before seeing his face and knowing his blessing. Folks, I'm not twisting things when I say before we finish, we have to look at the connection of Genesis 32 to the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God experienced an astonishing assault upon his being, wrestling grace, 
wrestling the results of grace that his father was working out so that he could bring an overcoming victory to those of us who put trust in him. Jesus wrestled in Gethsemane. He didn't wrestle with Satan. He wrestled with his father. It was his father that he was saying, can't there be a different way to do this? Jesus wrestled and agonized upon the cross itself, doing battle. And he had to cry out, you know that cry, my God, have you forsaken me? Are you my enemy? He was temporarily crushed by death. But that wrestling match of his, you see, like Jacob's, didn't bring a defeat. It brought a marvelous victory so that you and I, who trust in him and the victory that he won, can limp our ways forward into new lives called by a new name with his wonderful grace making us new people. Christians look to much of the world, I guess, like cripples. Maybe that was good. That's what we should look like. So we can say, I can still walk because of the grace of God, because of God's strength made perfect in my weakness, because the Son of God wrestled and prevailed for me on the cross. I just leave you the challenge today. What will it take in your life to finally drive a stake through your old self-sufficient, I can do it, I can make it happen, human nature? What will it take for that to come to the point of absolute weakness and you to understand it's not about you grabbing the blessings? What will it take for you to stop wrestling against God and start clinging to him. If you do, you'll find he's been there working for you all the time for nothing but your good, for nothing but a new life that you can claim and you can call your own in the name of Jesus. Our Father, we pray that this weak, broken man this schemer and conniver who came to the end where he could do nothing but plead would be a picture for us. Somebody here has got some business to do with you. I wonder, Lord, if you're finding that person ready to say, I won't let go of you before you bless me. Will you bless me for the sake of Jesus Christ? I know you'll answer that prayer, Father. I pray for that person and your blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen.